Hello and welcome to Stoicism, Philosophy as a Way of Life. My name is Donald Robertson and today's guest is Robin Waterfield. Robin's a British classicist who's translated many works of Plato, Xenophon and other Greek writers. He's also the author of several books, including the recently published Plato of Athens, the first full-length modern biography of Plato in English. Hello, Robin. How are you? I'm fine, Donald. Thank you very much for inviting me onto the show. Well, it's a pleasure. I'm looking forward to it. I want you to tell us everything you know about Plato in a moment. But before we do that, um, I should say I'm speaking from Montreal and you are currently in... Southern Greece. In Southern Greece. Not just currently. That's that's always where I am. I don't have any other property dotted around the globe like some people. You're, you're <laughs> right, right there. Like... Right there, overlooking the sea. Could be worse. Uh, yeah, I, I wish I was there right now. Like we were, just talk, we were talking about that earlier. Um, so let, I wanted to dive right in and, and ask about yep. Plato. And I noticed you said in your book, which I, I read cover to cover recently, and I thoroughly enjoyed actually. Thank you. Like, so I hope like more people read it after this podcast of ours. You said Plato is not just important, like but super important. Uh why, first of all, should anybody today care about Plato? What's so important about him? Um, actually, well, I think there's there's no single answer to that question. I think he's important in a large number of ways. I mean, I think people should care about him, for instance, because if they care about fine literature, about fine writing, because he's a terrific writer, he's fun just to read. Yeah. And, you know, that's that's one thing. Or then there are more specialist things. You know, a metaphysician might, you know, practicing academic philosopher metaphysician might might say that he's super important because of his work in metaphysics. And then, you know, an ethicist might say because of his work in ethics and so on and so forth. But leaving aside any specific ideas or theories <clears throat> that he came up with, I think he's, he's most important because of the way he conceived doing philosophy. Um, he, he thought, Aristotle agreed too, that doing philosophy is the best way of life for a human being. Um, um, and since uh, all human beings are endowed with curiosity, somewhere in the Theaetetus, Plato says, philosophy begins with curiosity. Philosophy begins with wonder. Mm-hmm. Since all human beings are endowed with curiosity or wonder, they all, we all have the potential to be philosophers. Not that everyone makes use of that potential, however. So, so philosophy in this sense becomes a kind of a blanket term for ways in which to feed that curiosity, which Plato saw as an innately human quality, one of the things that makes us specifically human. But each time you feed that curiosity, its horizons expand. And, you know, it, it finds there's more to seek. And so Plato saw philosophy as an open-ended pursuit, one that could well occupy a lifetime and one that corresponded to our nature as human beings, or at least, as I was saying, to the best part of our nature. Um, Plato saw us as kind of caught between a bestial side to our nature and a divine side of our nature. Uh, philosophy feeds the divine part of us and thus weakening the hold of the bestial part and brings us closer to what one way in which Plato described the ultimate goal of life was assimilation to God. 
So philosophy feeds the divine part of us, makes us, in fact, more divine in ourselves, brings us closer to God. Well, we could all do with more of that, as you're you're implying. But I think it's fair to say, to a large extent, today, studying Plato is the province of academics. Um, And there are people outside academia that read Plato's dialogues, but perhaps not as widely read as, as things like Marcus Aurelius, for example, yeah. Um, Stoicism has gone through this resurgence, but we, we haven't really seen the same kind of resurgence of interest in, in Plato per se. Um, and I wonder, do you do so? Do you feel that more people outside of academia should be learning about Plato? Oh, I, I absolutely do. As I've as I've already kind of implied, he is really good to read. I, I can't think of of any other philosopher who presents his ideas in such a palatable form that, you know, um, I'm sure everybody listening knows, but his works are called dialogues because they are, in effect, um, uh, portraits of interactions between people who are raising philosophical questions. But they're, they're superbly written. I mean, okay, I mean, there's a sense in which certainly Plato t- has a tendency to take us deeper more quickly than, say, Marcus does. And so he's mm. always going to be a slightly more difficult read than Plato. But nevertheless, mm. what I'm saying is that he's such a good writer, uh, sorry, yeah. than Marcus, <laughs> but um, what I'm saying is he's such a good writer that he is very accessible. I mean, The Republic, along, yeah. but, you know, on everybody's list of one of the great books of the world, um, is, is really, really readable, provided you can find a good translation, I hasten to add. And, of course, it's been... Uh, my mission for mm-hmm. 40 years, almost exactly 40 years. I had my first translation of Plato published in 1982. Uh, so it's been my mission to to present Plato to mm-hmm. uh, to a wider audience. Right. Um, I've got, I don't know, 15 or so, no, I think 12 or so volumes of uh, Plato's works. I've translated over half of his corpus. Um, so yeah, no, I really think more people should be reading Plato. I think he's one of those writers you get as much out of it as you can. What whatever your background, there'll be something there for you. And next time you go back, you'll find something else. Because one of one of the way one of the reasons I say that I consider him a really great writer is that in the best of his works, there's always there always seems to be something more going on under the surface of the text yeah. than you're quite aware of. And so I think that each time we we go back to, you know, the really great works, Symposium, Republic, Fido, Gorgias, and a bunch of others, the, the shorter works, the early works, every time we go back, we're going to get something more out of it. It reminds me a bit of reading Shakespeare or something, or other great literature in general. <laughs> but I, I was going to say also, I think for some people, um, maybe... You know, I'm gonna. Maybe this is a bit of a glib thing to say, but it's often said that today people's attention spans seem a bit mm-hmm. shorter, perhaps, because of so- we're used to social media and things like that. And so I feel like maybe some people don't have the attention span to get from beginning to end through the Republic, for example. Um, and you know, I'm wondering what the obstacles like to yeah. Plato reaching a, a wider audience today. Sometimes I suggest to people just read book one. Of the Republic, yep. right? Because it's the easiest yep. bit to read. I mean, we'll that, certainly I take it in chunks anyway. Yeah, take it. I mean, you can't you can't sit down and read the whole thing. You know, you read a chapter at bedtime. 
as yeah. one does. You know. And the apology is also a really good. Oh, the apology is wonderful. It's funny. Yeah, it's a masterpiece. Yeah. It's 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 witty and and sarcastic and, and ironic and funny. I love it. Yeah. And then the, this, and then they could progress onto the symposium, which is also what, maybe one of the more kind of dramatic, really, re- that, it's a very accessible work. The symposium, and yeah. you know, I mean, Plato's most famous for his metaphysical theory, which we call the theory of forms. It's not a very happy translation of form, but anyway, it's the mm-hmm. one we're stuck with. Um, and the symposium consists of a series of speeches given at a party, at a symposium, um, a culminating with one delivered by Socrates, Plato's teacher hist- historically, and also his sort of hero and his main mouthpiece in the dialogues. So culminating in his speech by, by Socrates, in which he introduces the theory of forms in the most accessible fashion imaginable. So, I mean, yeah, symposium, symposium is a really good place to start. Apologies, Symposium. We're talking about masterpieces. Like, so, you know, I always think it's strange to be, you know, trying to encourage people to read them in a sense. We're kind of like, you know, do, like doing a sales job and pitching these books to a wider audience. And you guys should read Plato's Apology. Of course they should, though. Yeah. Like, because it's, it almost goes without saying that everybody should, uh, if they can, like, yeah. try to, to read these things. But when I was a young guy, I remember trying to read um the republic and i was i was probably a teenager i think i was about 17 um and i kind of got about halfway through it and then i found it hard going but i then stumbled across a second in a second-hand bookshop and i can't even remember the title of this book but it was a collection of excerpts from plato's dialogues and i found that much easier to read and so i wonder if today in the age of the internet more people might get into Plato if they were able to access it through excerpts, for example. Yeah. Well, there is, inter- there is a, there's a very good Plato reader published by the University of Edinburgh Press. I'm just, the name of the editor of the book temporarily escapes me, but it's in, it's in the uh, bibliography of my biography of Plato. So. Yeah, well, but, but 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 he just—it's—it's it's a pity, but he has the reputation of being difficult, and some of his later works are difficult. Yeah, you would not recommend are. reading the Laws or the Sophist or the Statesman to to anybody. They need to work up to that <laughs> in exactly the same way, I believe, as as uh, people in Plato's Academy needed to work up to those dialogues. Um, but uh, but yeah, the ones you've mentioned, and I'd add the Phaedo as well, and the Gorgias. Uh, easy, easy to read, and as I said before, you'll get something out of it. Everybody will get something out of them. I think also some people may be shocked when they read. Actually, I've heard people say that when they read Plato for the first time, they were kind of surprised at the irony and the sarcasm mm-hmm. and the kind of the, it's not philosophy as people would normally envisage it, and. Part of that, I think we maybe we take for granted when we, if we're a little bit more used to the character of Socrates, but sh- people shouldn't necessarily expect to find clear arguments that pers- they shouldn't necessarily expect to walk away from Plato agreeing with everything that he says. Absolutely. They may he, walk he, away with yeah, more sorry. questions than answers, I was going to say. Yeah, no, no, that's, uh, Plato, that's exactly what Plato would have wanted. I mean, <clears throat> most famously, the short 
um, early dialogues, you know, like uh, Lakey's comedies and so on, end negatively. They are a discussion of a topic, so does the first book of Plato's Republic, which discusses the, the concept of justice and ends up saying, well, we don't know what justice is. Or in comedies, we don't know what uh, self-discipline is or self-knowledge is, or in Lakey's courage. Um, yeah. So he's actually encouraging readers to, well, to do two things, I think, to, to, to start to think for themselves, well, hang on, has the argument gone wrong? If so, where's the argument gone wrong? Can I come up with a better argument? So to start to be philosophers themselves and mm -hmm. to start to think, um, you know, what do I actually think about courage? What what do I believe it is? How, how will that belief make me a courageous person or help me to be a courageous person and so on? So yeah, definitely well, Plato wanted wanted that outcome. That leads on, I think, to quite naturally to maybe what's quite a deep or quite a serious question, which is, do you think everyone's ready for that? You know, because even in the time of Plato and Socrates, there were some people who found that exhilarating. And they describe even being kind of addicted to engaging in conversation with Socrates. And there were other people that were utterly repelled and unnerved by this kind of questioning approach. And I assume it's similar today. What's the difference, though? I've always really wondered, you know, what if there are two types of people that read the Socratic dialogues, you know, they either love it or hate it, what's the difference between uh, these two groups of people? I'm reminded of the old joke, Donald. <clears throat> there are two types of people, those who categorize people as two types yeah. and those who don't. <laughs> um. No, I, I can only repeat, I think, what, I, what I've been saying. He's not difficult to read. If, if people could overcome that initial hesitation um, and plunge in, then, uh, then I think there they'd enjoy people, it. There are some people, Robin, I, I'm going to stop talking about psychology then, right? There are, there's, a, there's a psychological... You never imagined that we were going to get into that. There's a psychological... What a surprise. <laughs> ...called intolerance of uncertainty. That, uh -huh. that we measure using questionnaire, like psych psychometric tools. And intolerance of uncertainty is actually correlated with anxiety, right? Yeah. So some people are more tolerant of ambiguity and uncertainty. Like, and I don't have some grand theory about this, but it does strike me knowing that, that when I read <clears throat> Plato, I think people who are intolerant of uncertainty are going to have a hard time. Like, or intolerant of those type of individuals, I think, um, do you think? Do you think so, or, or would they be? I mean, when we when we read a book, even if even if the book ends with uncertainty, because we're the reader, aren't we slightly removed from what we're reading, and so it doesn't affect us personally, perhaps in the way that you're suggesting? I don't know. I'm not a. I you're the psychologist, I, not me. I half I half agree with you. Like, right. I think I think in some cases, yeah. But you mentioned earlier that the whole point of Plato is to to transform our lives. So I think if somebody goes to Plato and they're just kind of reading it as, as literature and they're not thinking about, you know, like changing their philosophy of life as a result of it, it might affect them less deeply. But yeah. I think people who are searching for a purpose in life or some kind of meaning and go looking to philosophy and are left with more questions than answers at the beginning <laughs> are going to have to be yeah. pretty tolerant of ambiguity or uncertainty. Yeah, 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 Otherwise, yeah. they're going to they're going to be scared and un unnerved. 
like just people were freaked out allegedly by by Socrates. Um, and some people got quite. Well, they obviously... found him offensive at any rate. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. Yeah. They must have found him unsettling. Oh, yeah. What well, he he said he said he was the gadfly of Athens. Yeah. His, he said his job was to unsettle people. Well, that leads us nicely into like one of the most vexed questions. We might as well grab the bull by the horns here. This is going to be talking the about problem. How did you guess? Like <laughs> we're talking, we're talking about these two guys. Like, so I have to remember, some of our listeners haven't read Plato. They're not going to know much about it. So we've been talking about these two guys, Socrates and Plato, a lot, almost interchangeably at times. Mm-hmm. Like, and so we should probably explain why do they go, why is there this double act and why they go hand in hand? You mentioned that Socrates was the teacher of Plato, but they're welded <laughs> together, like, um, you know, throughout history because of the, the way in which Plato wrote um his dialogues so how would you sum up the socratic problem for our listeners who haven't heard of it before yeah i i actually think the welding i think that's a good image you've come up with and i think that is right i think they are so firmly welded together that you can't distinguish the historical socrates from what you're reading in plato and xenophon some people disagree. Some people think you can. Oh, to, to some some, it, right? many, many scholars um, think that the most accurate portrait of Socrates is the one that Plato gives us in a series of short yeah. dialogues, which are almost certainly the first works that he wrote. But I yeah. think that's I think that's wrong. I mean, uh-huh. it's a why, why, would, why would Plato spend 10 years of his life just writing uh-huh. pen portraits of Socrates? He was an original yeah. philosopher, you know. Yeah. And, and uh, so basically, we've got three portraits. I'm discounting a mini portrait by Aristophanes in a play yeah. called Clouds, uh, which is okay. uh, it's unfortunate that one has to discount it because it's actually the only contemporary portrait of Socrates yeah. that we have. It was the play was produced in 423. Um, Everything about this is frustrating. Uh, yeah. Right. So, yeah. but what we what we have discounting Aristophanes because he made the Socrates character in his play is a sort of a, a portmanteau figure carrying bits of the sophists and bits of the early proto scientists and you know maybe a bit of him but we can't really tell. So after that, we're left with three portraits of Socrates. We've got the one in early Plato where Socrates questions people, doesn't come up with definite answers or ideas or doctrines. Then we've got the Socrates of Plato's middle dialogues, who is exactly mm-hmm. the opposite, who keeps mm-hmm. coming up with uh, yeah. ideas, steering the conversation more overtly, and even coming up with ideas that contradict ideas that have been presented in the early dialogues in the first portrait of Socrates. And then the third portrait we've got is that of Xenophon. All three are completely mm-hmm. different, so they can't mm-hmm. all be right. So to plump for... But they could all be uh, wrong. They, uh, that's exactly what I think. Yeah. None of none of them are historical portraits. Both Plato and Xenophon were using the figure Socrates for their own philosophical purposes. Uh-huh. Uh, so, to me, the historical Socrates is is lost, and we'll we'll never be able to recover him. Well, I'm going to play devil's advocate, right? Because okay. I, I i i don't I don't have a strong view on this, right? But the counter one counter argument would be among those scholars who. I think has traditionally have said, well, 
you're right. I mean, there's not a lot of common ground between Aristophanes' depiction of Socrates and, and Plato's. You know, they're all they're almost opposite. It's really hard to make much sense out of uh, what Aristophanes says. But isn't there some commonality between Xenophon and Plato's depiction of Socrates? I mean, the big thing that's not there is the theory of forms in, in Xenophon. But are there maybe other respects in which and could so could we not look for commonalities between Xenophon and Plato to try to reconstruct to get back to the yes the, the but, real Socrates? There are some commonalities, um, but the difficulty is knowing the difficulty is making the inference from that to um so so here we have a portrait of here we have a facet of the historical Socrates. I mean, for instance, um right, Plato wrote dialogues. He he had Socrates interacting with other people and conversing with them, trying to settle uh ethical, especially problems. Xenophon does that once. In one of his memorabilia, as they're called, his memoirs of Socrates, he he has Socrates doing exactly the same kind of thing. So so perhaps we we could say from this right, um, this is what the historical Socrates genuinely used to do. But you see, that's not certain. Um, uh, Plato's portrait of of Socrates doing, as I believe, Platonic work, communicating the ideas that Plato wanted to communicate, not being a historical portrait of Socrates. Plato's Plato's portrait of Socrates in that respect was very powerful, very convincing, Mm -hmm. and I think Xenophon simply tried his hand at coming up with a similar dialogue, as simple as that. It's the the phenomenon that um, scholars called intertextuality, where uh, one writer um, leans heavily on another, for, mm-hmm. uh, for to make some to make some point. I mean, to go back to the apology. <coughs> excuse me. One of the most uh, notorious examples of this is that, mm-hmm. as uh, people who've read the apology know, that one of the fundamental stories in it is that a friend of Socrates is called Chirophon went mm-hmm. to the uh, Oracle of Apollo at Delphi and um, yeah. asked, "Is anybody wiser than Socrates?" And the Oracle said, "No." It's a really weird story, right? So now I absolutely believe that to be fiction. Uh, if it, if it yeah. wasn't if it wasn't fiction, why don't we know more about it? Uh, you know, yeah. a, an Athenian has just been called the wisest person in the world. Wouldn't this be something that was reflected in other works by other Athenian writers or speeches or so on and so forth? But the same story crops up not in absolutely identical terms, but in very similar terms mm-hmm. in Xenophon as well. Yeah. So there again, you see, I think since 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 we can be ninety percent at least sure that the oracle story is a fiction, then the fact that Xenophon borrowed he borrowed it, but knowing that it was a fiction, mm-hmm. so this this is the way intertextuality works. You see, he borrowed he borrowed this famous story from Plato to make his own points about and changes it. My, slightly changes it. it. Slightly changes it. The 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 virtues. The, the yeah, slightly the virtues that. Plato's apology assigns to Socrates. I can't remember. There's one missing, or one that Xenophon substitutes for another one. Anyway, yeah, it's just a slightly different list of, of, of virtues. And there's no indication of when this happened. Really, not much indication of when this is supposed to have 
happened well, either. This, you see, this is this is the other thing that that to my mind proves that the story is false is that Socrates, as far as we know, mm-hmm. uh, and our evidence is pretty good, was only ever famous as the person who went around questioning people. Right, right. Uh, but in in Plato's Apology, Chirophon's question to the oracle, and the oracle says, no, Socrates is the wisest person in the world, is precisely mm-hmm. what triggers Socrates' mission to go around mm-hmm. and questioning people, because he says to himself, well, come on, I can't be the wisest person in the world. I'll go around and talk to all these clever people that I know, and uh, you know they'll prove, they'll prove the oracle wrong, uh, which, of course, he didn't do, and the oracle was proved to be right, at least in the limited sense. Socrates says that I I am wise in the limited sense that at least I know that I don't know, <laughs> which is nice. Um, um, so I've slightly lost my thread, but but uh, yeah, no. So so um, since in the in the apology, that's the story that triggers Socrates' yeah. mission to go around questioning people. But yeah. since at the same time he was only ever famous as the, there was no reason for Chirophon to go to the oracle and ask if Socrates the cleverest person in the world if Socrates hadn't already been doing that, going around and questioning people. It's a strange question to put to the Oracle as well. Like, and it wasn't, I don't think it was easy. Would he not have had to be several days travel? There the would, there would have been several days travel. Yeah. It would have been expensive. Expensive. Uh, but not as, not as, not as, you see, there are two ways of, there were two ways of consulting the Oracle. Yeah. You either, if you, especially if you were a state, or perhaps right. a very, very important person. You uh, paid a lot of money, you did a sacrifice, and you asked your question as a question, and ah. the oracle came up with a reply, which the you know the, the, the Pythia, the priestess, burbled a reply. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't believe in any fumes coming out of the ground there, so we'll, we'll cover that another time if we want. Uh, but anyway, she burbled a reply, which was interpreted by the priests, so that was the full-fledged, expensive uh, way of consulting the oracle. But the other way was uh-huh. just with a yes/no answer, which was right. you know, Chirophon had for Socrates, um, and that was just a black pebble or a white pebble, whichever came out first, black or white. Right, pebble. right. So maybe it's plausible that he could have put a question like that. Oh, it's plausible he could have put a question, but I just don't think he. I just don't think he did. You don't believe he did. <laughs> is it possible? Is there a way of salvaging this anecdote by saying? Um, is it possible that what Socrates means is that he was already doing some kind of philosophy? Maybe he was already doing that. He was he was doing natural philosophy. Plato suggests earlier. Fido, yeah. All right. Is it possible he was doing natural philosophy and questioning people about the nature of natural phenomena like the sun and so on? Um, but that after receiving the response from the oracle, he began questioning people about the nature of wisdom. And the other virtues. It's possible. Would that be a kind of compromise? It's possible. Right. I don't believe. But this it. is the. It's possible. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. But this is what you get into. It's like you're trying oh, yeah. to solve these riddles of like, is there yeah. a way of making this work? Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't seem to make sense. But 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 let's stress again, given what we were talking about earlier, that these are scholarly riddles. This is you and yeah. me talking. This is not something that you need to. Have sorted you out to, before yeah. you read the books. You know, you can just get into the books. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Oh, but then I have another question that this kind of triggers for me and maybe it's, it's looking at it from a slightly different perspective. So suppose we say that the Socratic dialogues are a particular literary genre, which are kind of, I don't know how you put it, the sort of thought experiments that just use uh, Socrates as a mouthpiece to explore philosophical views. And they're written as dialogues. And so they have to be giving a, a bit of kind of historical context and dressing um, but that's not necessarily accurate like, or reflective of real events. Um, we, should, we could view them as largely pieces of historical fiction. Um, I do. Yeah. But then that, that prompts a de- another question, another level for me, um, which is, to what extent... So P- Plato depicts... Socrates is a particular type of character, a very different character from the one that's depicted by Aristophanes, for example. Mm-hmm. The, the, the atmosphere that you get from him, the, it seems like a different sort of guy. Um, Plato generally, like I think it's fair to say overall, Plato portrays Socrates um, in a kind of idealized way, like uh, perhaps as the ideal philosopher in a sense. But to what extent was Plato as a person like the Socrates that he depicts in his dialogues? Given that you've written a biography of Plato, (laughs) when I read your biography of Plato, I did something that you might think is a little bit odd. And I I, kind of closed my eyes for a minute and I thought, does this guy sound like Socrates? Does he sound... And I thought, no, he doesn't. He sounds like... His life, his character sound quite different in a number of ways from Socrates. And then it reminded me, I think, of a charge that was made as far back as antiquity against Plato, um, which was the the charge of hypocrisy, in a sense, that he was not um, the kind of philosopher um, in real life that he depicted Socrates being in his dialogues. So I guess the question I have is to what extent like do you think Plato is a real person resembled the philosopher that he portrays in his dialogues uh, using Socrates as a literary device? Very very early on when I started to write this biography I had to address the problem of how much you could infer, as a, as a general problem, not just about Plato, but how much one could infer about an author's character from what he writes. So to put this at its most extreme, mm-hmm. was Nabokov, Vladimir Nabokov, the author of Lolita, was he, as a historical person, obsessed with underage girls? No, he wasn't. He was just writing a book. So um, I actually don't think there's much to be inferred about Plato's character from uh, the character of Socrates in the dialogues. I think that, um, as we've already said to a certain extent, Socrates is a fiction created by Plato for his own purposes. Um, (laughs) Can we infer the character of Sophocles 
from you know Oedipus and, and Antigone and and all those other people in his plays? No, we can't. We can't do that with any playwright. We can say certain things about Sophocles. We can say certain things about Shakespeare that he, you know his humanitarianism or whatever, whatever. But it's only at a very sort of general level that we can make these inferences. Um, so again, I'm being rather same, you know, as I was with the Socratic problem. I, mm-hmm. I, I just don't think we can read uh, the historical Socrates off from the dialogues, and I don't think we can read Plato's character off from the Socrates of the dialogues either. Let me ask you another uh, related question. Um, actually, I'll ask you a very specific one. Um, I, did Plato go around barefoot? Did Plato go around barefoot? Like Socrates? I should think probably not. Probably not, right? Yes. So this is my example. Right. Right. So why... No, no, no. No, no. Okay, so let me go go back. Um, What I should have said when we were talking about Uh the Socratic problem is I should have said, I don't think we get any insight into the historical Socrates except for a few personalia. Right, yeah. Except for a few personal traits. That he was like, known for widely, yeah, like like, like going like going barefoot. But even but even that even that going barefoot stuff is cliche. Open open to doubt because I mean yeah. you know is it belongs to that whole biographical tradition about Socrates, which had him being poor. Yeah, he was not poor. Right. No, as a historical fact, Socrates was not poor. He was a member of the hoplite caste. Which uh, was the sort of let's say the middle class to upper middle class. No, can you that, salvage that though by saying that he was a relatively poor? It was uh, well. I mean, he, he was he, he was poor in the sense that he was uninterested in making money. So whatever whatever wealth he had, he simply you know got through yeah. because he wasn't working as a as a stonemason or whatever he was supposed yeah. to be working at. Allegedly worked at his... Yeah. But, so, but uh, then again, but Plato, Plato wasn't poor. Right? No, Plato was and, certainly not poor. And yet, so could we say that Plato is dissimilar to the character of Socrates that he portrays in terms of Socrates' lifestyle? So does it not come across sometimes? I mean, I think even this is debatable, right? So I'm treading very carefully here. Like, does it not to many people come across as if Plato is presenting an idealized image of a philosopher who lives in relative poverty, um, goes about barefoot, doesn't commit his thought to writing, and yet Plato was wealthy, um, yeah. taught in a, a an institution that he set up, didn't teach in the Agora, didn't go about barefoot, um, you but know, but, but I mean, you're, su- you're supporting you're supporting my fundamental point here, which is yeah. that uh, you know we can't we can't learn about Plato from Socrates. But then, why did Plato? Would you know? Well, let me or let me put it another way. If you're a student in the academy, you might say, Plato, why do you keep telling us these stories about this philosopher that goes around barefoot, lives in poverty, and doesn't write anything? And you're the complete opposite yourself. Like you know, are you are you saying that we should be like Socrates? Are you, now, and as in my favor, I'll refer to centuries later, Epictetus, who yeah. read Plato's dialogues and said to his students, "You guys should emulate Socrates." But Plato, Plato did not emulate the Socrates in terms of his lifestyle and behavior. No. But the Stoics would have but, said, but, but, you, the Socrates, you go the, the, 
the Socrates that Epictetus is talking about is precisely the Socrates uh, of Plato's and Xenophon's works. He, again, yeah. he's not the historical Socrates. He's just what we, what Epictetus thought he knew of Socrates from these works. So Plato's constructed this literary character yeah. the, of an idealized philosopher, including his lifestyle, his demeanor and his behavior. And other people centuries later see that as a role model to be emulated, even though it's a work of fiction. Mm. But Plato doesn't emulate Socrates' style of teaching or his lifestyle. or So is this something that we're meant to emulate? If I was a student of Plato, I'd say, Plato, am I supposed to copy what you're doing or what you're depicting Socrates doing in terms of the ideal yeah. lifestyle of a philosopher? I, th I think if anybody had noticed this tension um, in ancient times and had put it to Plato, yeah. he'd have said, uh, no, it doesn't matter. Anybody can do philosophy, rich or poor, right. possibly even male and female. We'd, that's a more difficult one. Slave and non-slave. Well, there's uh, another example, right, where women admitted into, into Plato's school. I know that there's a couple of anecdotes isn't it an anecdote about women attending but having to disguise themselves as men? One of them did, yes. There's two, there's two women we hear of in the academy, uh -huh. Axiotheo and Lasthenea. Lasthenea? Lasthenea, I think. Um, and, yeah, one of, them, one of them got in by disguising herself as a man. I, I mean, th this, this evidence is pretty solid, so, so I have to believe it. But nevertheless, it's very puzzling because... Um, they could not mm. have been full members of the academy because right. at least some of the work of the academy went on at the nearby gymnasium, the gymnasium in the academy park. And gymnasium, where women weren't allowed. Where women weren't allowed because as the very word gymnasium means, it was where uh -huh. men and boys exercised naked. Yeah. So women weren't allowed, just as women weren't allowed at the Olympic Games for the same reason. Well, then if we riddle over that and try and salvage it, would that imply that Plato's house was in the suburb outside of the boundaries where women's yeah. access, but it's, I guess it's possible. But like you say, he, he seems to have done some teaching in the grounds of the gymnasium. Um, uh, yeah. I yeah. I, he was, um, there was, there was certainly two sites, one, one in the gymnasium, but also possibly elsewhere in the park, just strolling around. Yeah. Um, where some teaching went on. But then after Plato built his own house nearby, there was also mm -hmm. some, I don't know whether to call it teaching there, but certainly meetings went on there. You see, the academy, let's get on to this. The sure, academy really consisted of two different types of uh, yeah. residents. Um, there were a lot of people, we know only of a few names, but undoubtedly this was the sort of the... Uh, the core of the annual turnover of students consisted of just uh, young men aged 18 to 19 uh, mm. who walked out from Athens because philosophy, attending some philosopher or other, it didn't have to be Plato but or the academy, but philosophy was seen as a way of rounding off one's general education. And so mm. this is the context in which we hear, for instance, of Timotheus or Chabrias or Demosthenes um, Demosthenes, sorry, I'll speak English, <laughs> um, uh, attending the academy. They didn't do so in order to become philosophers. They didn't take it very deeply or seriously, right. but they just attended as part of their general education. So that was, as I say, I think that was the kind of like bread and butter of the academy. 
not bread and butter in the sense of payment because there was no, there were no fees. Uh, but the the more important that's a value judgment. The more important uh, aspect of what went on in the academy was the research. And this is where we get the great names. This is where we mm. get Spusippus, uh, Plato's nephew and his successor as head of the academy after Plato's death, Aristotle, Eudoxus of Cnidus, Heraclides of Pontus. All the great names were um, teachers in their own right, eventually. Um, I mean, Aristotle arrived at the academy when he was only 18 years old, so I don't think he was doing much teaching then, but he certainly... Mm -hmm later in uh, later on was doing some teaching within the academy uh but they were the they were researchers and i think it's it was chiefly them i think or this is my imagination i imagine them as it were huddled together with plato in his house yeah discussing right. these types of much more advanced theories mathematical uh the yeah. mathematical sciences featured very largely um yeah uh, in their research, you know, astronomy, especially from Eudoxus of Cnidus. Um, so um, I think that was my, my in, I imagined that it wasn't so much teaching that went on in Plato's house as discussion. Mm -hmm. And I think, I, I think they would also have gone through the dialogues yeah. as, as discussion documents. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I mean, the early dialogues, as we've already said, ending conclusively, what a great starting point for discussion. Yeah. Yeah, um, and you know, and a lot of the other later theories are are uh, up for grabs. Uh, some of the dialogues, like like Philebus, uh, contains a number of theories about pleasure, and it's almost like it's a repository of various views about pleasure that, uh, particularly the academic scholars, were uh, coming up with. Mm -hmm. And he wrote wrote down the dialogue perhaps as a discussion document, or most notoriously the dialogue Parmenides. This is a dialogue um, which, in the first half, subjects the theory of forms to what appear to be really quite devastating yeah. uh, counter arguments. Uh, again, I think that was a discussion document. I think there are good reasons for, for not seeing the Parmenides as as negative, as as obliterating the theory of forms, but as a discussion document for academic scholars to uh, to work through. <clears throat> well that I, I mean just to come back to my earlier point actually because I think that's you've just mentioned something that's another example of it perhaps the the character of Socrates doesn't come across as someone comes across as someone who's much more interested in questioning the nature of virtue um and ethical questions in, in daily life and um, something that he was reputedly known for whereas the teaching in Plato's academy must have focused on those questions but it also seems to have placed a lot of emphasis on mathematical research which doesn't really come across as it's, it's difficult to imagine Socrates saying what you guys need to do is spend 10 years studying mathematics and geometry or whatever uh, and, the, the, know, there's, there's even one of Xenophon's memorabilia you'll remember Donald where where he, he says the Plato opposite specifically yeah. saying you know this is of limited use yeah. Doing, doing the science, understanding cosmology and things is of really limited use in your life. So, yeah. Isn't there uh, an anecdote about Socrates saying you only need to know enough geometry to measure a plot of land or something like that? Uh, it rings a bell. Sounds, yeah, it sounds, sounds perfectly plausible, yes. So yes I'm studying sure. these theoretical subjects is of value, but only insofar as it's useful in solving 
problems yeah. in dealing with I think I think I mean it's I don't like to periodize things too much, you know, to separate one set of dialogues off from another, but you could conceivably see the early dialogues as as it were clearing the ground for right. okay. the later dialogues to build on. Something like that. You I had another question that came up earlier that's kind of bugged me for a while, and maybe I'm you know, this is just my lack of knowledge about the history. But we mentioned that women weren't allowed into the gymnasia. Yeah. Um, were non-Athenians allowed into? So the Kunasarges, I understand, was the gymnasium that was accessible to people who were only half Athenian. Yeah. Or um, so my my understanding previously was that it was only Athenian citizens full Athenian citizens that were permitted into the the Lyceum and the Academy. But Plato's students are not all Athenian. No. In fact, in fact, uh, you know, quite very few of the them. Foreign. Really, apart from the... But but this is, this is why I think that it was the sort of the teaching of the juniors that went on in the Academy, that uh, went on right. in, the gym, in the gymnasium. Whereas the more so they would have been senior Athenian staff, citizens. They would, they would largely, oh. at any rate, have been Athenian citizens. Your question, I don't know the answer to. I, I don't know whether non-Athenians were allowed in the academy. I, I would have thought, I would have thought they were. I mean, you've got this whole class of uh, residents, not citizens of Athens, who were called metics, metoikoi, um, who were non-Athenian residents of Athens and very often long-term residents of Athens. And we meet a number yeah. of them. Um, in Plato's dialogues, like Polemarchus in the first book of the uh, of the uh, Republic, and Lysias the orator was another one. In the in um, Piraeus, so. uh, yes, there's not that. Yeah, Piraeus was more of a home for these people, but they were in yeah. Athens as well. Yeah, um, uh, Piraeus was was more of a home for them because they were often very involved in in business matters, and Piraeus was the business Trade. center. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, um, yeah, no, I don't think I've got anything more to say about that. Well, we're at, I guess we're painting a picture of what life was like in the, in the academy. And maybe we, you can just elaborate a bit on that. that if I ask you more directly, what do you think it was like being a student at Plato's Academy? And we haven't, I think we only touched very lightly on the, the curriculum, for example, you know, if you went to if you went to become a student of Plato at the academy, what what would you think the experience would be like? Um, well, I don't know, and I don't think we can answer that because we actually don't know. We have we have plenty of evidence about the research that was going on among the senior right. students. But we have no evidence whatsoever of what kind of teaching was going on in the gymnasium. I say it was philosophy as as the culmination of a person's higher education, but we don't know. Did they did they work through dialogues? Possibly. Well, um, were they or, or were they simply were they did they work through the history of philosophy to a certain extent? I mean, Plato shows quite a bit of interest in in his predecessors. Um, so all of these things might have come up, but I, I, I don't know, and I don't think I, I don't I, I don't know there's any way that we ever will know precisely. What I think you're giving about. a partial answer, actually, which is that maybe 
um, given that we think of the academy as the home of specifically of philosophy, um, I think what you've implied is that the studies that they undertook there were broader in scope than we would normally do in a philosophy department today. Oh, say. oh that's absolutely right. We mentioned right. mathematics and yeah. studying uh, literature. Um, yeah. Would they have studied rhetoric? Oh in yeah, the academy yeah. Too? yeah. In fact, um, in fact, uh, it's said with with what. Uh, genuineness, I don't know that Aristotle taught rhetoric in the academy. Yeah. Um, um, hang so on, they what were, did you, you just said something that triggered something? They were polymaths by modern standards. Yeah, most certainly. I mean, the, the senior researchers were. Um, yeah. So it wasn't just a philosophy department. It was kind no, of... No, oh, yes, that's, that's what I was going to say. I mean, but... The, you know, the, the history of the term philosophy is quite interesting. And it wasn't really until early in the 19th century that it became separated off as yeah. a separate subject, more to be studied in universities than anywhere else. But up until then, it included, you know, if you if you did astronomy, like my great, 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 great grandfather, William and Herschel did, and his son, John, uh, that was part of philosophy, you know. So that that prompts another question for me, Robin, which is the again we we might think well they're all studying Plato's theory of forms and and stuff like that, but from what you've said in your biography, the uh, the early academy was fairly undogmatic in that there's some evidence of different views, yeah, um, is, regarding is- philosophy. This is this is one of the most interesting things about the academy. Um, uh, we know from reading Aristotle's works, mm-hmm. uh, and we know from what we know of the ideas of others of Plato's closest associates, people like Speusippus and Xenocrates. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that they came up with theories that contradicted yeah. Plato's. So whatever else the academy was. And I, that's one of the reasons I say it's probably best to describe it as a kind of a research center, fostering research. But whatever yes. else it was, it was not a school for the perpetuation of Plato's ideas. For churning out co- copies of Plato. Scholars were, scholars were, were yeah, no, not that at all. No a, clones, no clones. That's no clones, right? But that then leads to another question, right? Why? Why did Aristotle leave to found his own school then? Because it sounds like. It was fairly tolerant of disagreement. Like, how tall were there limits to that? They, did did Aristotle leave the founders of school for other reasons? Could his divergence from Plato's views have been tolerated um, within the academy? Itself? Well, I think yes, I think they were. I mean, I think I think Aristotle was probably writing stuff in which he writing works in which he disagreed with Plato, even while he was still. In the working in the academy, um, he left the academy immediately after Plato's death, and there are it's possible he left in a bit of a huff at not being chosen and to be being, uh, yeah. Plato's successor, being passed Spus- over. Being passed over, but he was still a young man. Speusippus was elderly. Speusippus was much more plugged into the academy than Aristotle was, because Speusippus was much more of a mathematician than Aristotle ever was. Uh, so are we so wrong he might then? Have, he might have left in a bit, bit of a huff, but under a cloud. Meh, I'm not sure about it, but it, it's possible. But m- more importantly, I think he started his own school. 
yeah for exactly the same reason that plato and antisthenes and others fido of Elis, started their own schools after socrates's death i think socrates would heartily have improved go away go and do you know you're grown-ups now uh go and do your own stuff develop your own philosophy in your own way and I think Plato would have been absolutely delighted to see Aristotle and others going ahead and doing that. And Zeno also. Uh, yeah, not that he knew Plato, and... of course. He studied with no. Xenocrates. Yeah. And Pokemon. But, no, but I think, I think Zeno's a slightly different case, Donald. Um, uh-huh. You know more about his life than I do, so tell me, tell me if you think I'm barking up the wrong tree. But from what we seem to know about Zeno's time in Athens, uh-huh. uh, before he started his school, he dotted around. Yeah. He attended the lectures of Crates, of Xenocrates, of some others, who I can't remember off the top of my head. So that smacks to me, that suggests to me that right from the start he was thinking of starting his own school. And the Megarians, he studied under. You, you could read Stilpo, it as being Stilpo was another one, Stilpo, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Like he, he may have been studying in different Socratic schools. I mean, it's possible he was. You know, maybe he was even trying to reconstruct like you know, what Socrates had taught. All these different schools that uh, descended from him. But he, there's, I don't think there's any mention of him studying um, in the Lyceum. No, I, I don't think so either. Yeah, yeah. So as, you say, as you say, picking from all the different Socratic uh, trees. Yeah, yeah. Perhaps. Perhaps. Um, but he was also very interested in Pythagoreanism. He wrote a book about the Pythagoreans, which is a somewhat more artless segue into asking you about Plato and the Pythagoreans. Um, so, they, but I think a lot of people wouldn't realise this perhaps, or it takes them a while to kind of think about it from this perspective. Um, Plato was really into, we've talked about how he's a huge fan of Socrates and this is his idol and so on, but Plato was also into Pythagoreanism and I wonder if you could say a little bit about what his relationship with Pythagoreanism was and to what extent you feel that that influenced his uh, philosophy. I think think he had the Pythagoreans a very great deal. Um, I think that one way you could characterize uh, at least some of the major differences between the dialogues written earlier in Plato's life and the middle period dialogues is precisely that they were influenced by Pythagoreanism. Because in between, Mm -hmm. Plato went on uh, the first of his famous journeys. He went to southern Italy and to Sicily and um, uh, specifically I'm sure, to meet the Pythagoreans because the Pythagoreans were yeah. had long been and were still based um, in southern Italy. So, for instance, he met uh, Archytas of Tarentum and, uh, and others um, in Locri and Tarentum and in Syracuse. Um, and then he came back and carried on writing. And I think, as I say, I think there are multiple influences. For instance, let's go back to the theory of forms. Mm. Uh, the theory of forms, in brief, what is it that enables us to identify things, to name their qualities? There are no perfect models of beauty here on earth for us to look to, to say, oh, yeah, look, that gets quite close to beauty. So how come we have a notion of ideal beauty to which things here on earth more or less approximate? Plato thought that what enables us to identify things, identify the properties of things, are these 
immaterial entities he calls forms, which is how we translate the Greek word ada. But how did we get to know these immaterial entities? That was a puzzle for Plato until he came across the Pythagorean notion of metempsychosis, that mm, souls okay. are serially incarnated in bodies. Right. So right, he said, said Plato, if our souls are immortal, then at some time in the past we must have acquired knowledge of forms, or at least a glimpse of them, as he puts it in Phaedrus. And so he mm. concluded, when we work with forms in our lifetimes, that is, for instance, when we call something beautiful or call an action courageous or something like that, what we're doing is remembering what we came to know sometime in the past. So this combination of the idea of forms, which he gained from reflecting on uh, re the work of the early dialogues, combined with Pythagorean metempsychosis, gives us Plato's theory of recollection, as it's called, that our knowledge of forms isn't getting to know them, it's remembering mm -hmm. them from, from the past. So that's one example, a very important one, of Plato's debts to the Pythagoreans. Another one um, I could mention would be that the Pythagoreans said, the, famously said, there were three basic types of people. Yeah. And that everyone has elements of all three types in them, uh, usually with one dominant, either dominant over one's whole life or dominant at any given moment. And they used a metaphor of the kinds of people who attend, who attend the Olympic Games. They said, some people come to make money, you know, they're trading, hawking goods, etc, etc. Some come to compete, that's the athletes, and some just to watch. So mm -hmm. some people desire gain, that's their fundamental motivation. Some people desire honor, they're the prickly egoistic types, mm -hmm. and some just desire to observe. And now Plato took that over lock, stock and barrel for his famous theory that every human soul has yeah. three parts, an appetitive part, an honor-loving mm -hmm. part, and a rational part. So again, mm -hmm. that's, that's, I think, a direct influence from the Pythagoreans to Plato. And again, that's a view that we don't get in the early dialogues, and then we suddenly get in the middle yeah. dialogues, particularly Republic, uh, Meno first, then Republic and Phaedrus. So in general, I think I'd say that what the Pythagoreans gave Plato was the occasional kind of mystical tinge uh, to his work, um, yeah. perhaps especially in Phaedrus. Again, again, going back to why not read Plato, Phaedrus is wonderful. It consists that the, the, you know, a, a large chunk of the book is this fabulous myth about the human soul. Um, anyway, I won't say more, spoiler alert. But, um, you know, Phaedrus is just a, it's a wonderful, wonderful piece of literature and everybody should read it. Yeah. But the Pythagoreans uh, were also the foremost mathematicians of their time. Right. We've already said how right. uh, Plato rated mathematical mathematics and mathematical sciences very highly. So that's another part of it. But to what extent would Socrates have been exposed to Pythagoreanism? Um, I mean, just when you're saying this, I guess this is a trivial comment to make, but, you know, Plato puts some of these thoughts into the mouth of Socrates, you know, he, you know, and you could say he's, he's over time, he's using Socrates, this historical figure as a vehicle for expressing Pythagorean influenced ideas, which is a little mm -hmm. bit odd in a way. The one thing that Socrates doesn't say in the Apology is that he's not worried about being executed because he believes in reincarnation. No, exactly. And, and in, fact, in fact, he's very sceptical about what happens after death Yeah, in the Apology. And that's a direct contrast with, uh, with Plato's views on reincarnation in the Middle Dialogues.
But Socrates presumably would have known Pythagoreans. Um, it's it's difficult to say quite what. I mean, you'll remember that famously, Plato's only uh, mention of direct mention of Pythagoras occurs in the Republic, and he describes right. him as the founder of a way of life. Yeah, not as a philosopher. Now, right. so I think historically, that's that's how Pythagoras would have been regarded in Socrates' day. It was really only when a chap called Philolaus came right. along, a Pythagorean called Philolaus came along in the later 5th century, uh-huh. I think contemporary with Socrates, overlapping with Socrates' lifetime. It was only then that Pythagoreanism gained, as it were, more doctrine. Uh, Philolaus was, if you like, the St. Paul to uh, mm-hmm. Pythagoras' Jesus. Mm-hmm. Well, do you think there's a connection between Pythagoreanism and the mystery religions in the sense that, you know, maybe it was a kind of quasi-religious Yes, I, th- I think there was a connection. Self. I think there was a connection in what they were trying to, what initiates were, were trying to gain. I don't think there was any similarity of method, background, um, you know, Pythagoreanism wasn't necessarily religious in the same sense that, you know, the mysteries were centrally part of uh, Greek religion. But uh, but both the mysteries and Pythagoreanism were offering people uh, the chance of a better afterlife. Um, or, in the, or in the case of the Pythagoreans, not just a better afterlife, but the ability to remain conscious in the underworld and choose your next incarnation rather than having it stuffed upon you by somebody else. I think you mentioned in your book the connection between Plato and Apollo. And yep. there are a number of sources. I think Diogenes Laertius is one of them that uh, claim that Pythagoras, that Pythagoras derived his ethical teachings from uh, Pythia. Um, and there are a number of associations uh, between the like the worship of Apollo, uh, if I remember rightly, and the Pythagorean sect. So I do wonder if there's some connection between like the the cult of Apollo at Delphi and Pythagoreanism. I not not that I know of. I mean, Apollo, like all the Greek gods, was was very capacious. Yeah. You know, I mean, for instance, taking Apollo, his capacity was such that he was simultaneously the god of healing and the god of causing disease. Um, You know, and quite often the Greek gods get, as it were, extra names attached to them. Uh, You know, we've got Zeus the Thunderer is one aspect of Zeus. We've got Zeus the Kindly is another aspect of Zeus and so on and so forth. We've even, even in in Olympia... um, where the Olympic Games was held, we've even got Zeus, the averter of flies. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's, so, yeah, it's useful in parts of Greece. <laughs> yeah, for sure, <laughs> particularly around there. Yeah. So, I mean, we've talked, but now we're getting into the route, we're talking about, about mythology and, and the pre-Socratics, you know, into these the dark, um, more mysterious uh, parts of uh, Greek history. Um, but I thought to conclude, maybe we could bring things bang up to date. And I just wondered if you have any thoughts. We talked at the very beginning about why people should care about Plato. And I wonder, you know, whenever I talk to people today about philosophy, you know, they want to know things like how philosophy could help them in their lives, 
to develop emotional resilience, to cope with stress. But one of the main things that people mention, the big, one of the challenges that people perceive is dealing with social media, misinformation, you know, uh, people feel quite manipulated um, by yeah. influencers. Um, and, you know, and they, I, I, well, let me actually make a statement. I used to think the sophists were all dead and gone. And mm. then I started to think one day, you know, the relationship that we have with social media in general is not dissimilar in some ways to the relationship that the ancient Athenians had with the sophists. Um, social media's algorithms are designed to use a kind of rhetoric like in their own way. They're all about manipulating us, evoking our emotions, yeah. captivating our interest. You know, uh, they're experts at, at persuasion in a, in, a, in a different but not completely unrelated way. And so the challenge that we face is similar. How do we avoid having our strings pulled? By... Yeah, I think, I think that's a really good insight, Donald. I like that comparison between influencers and the sophists. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know whether you follow the Doonesbury cartoon, but last Sunday's was, was pretty good. The parents are saying, um, why don't you go and get a job? They're saying to their daughter. And she says, what do you mean? I've been an influencer for two years and now I'm a creative. <laughs> yeah. I, it's it's anyway, quite strange. What I think, what I think Plato would, I think, I think Plato would have a pretty clear line of approach, uh, which is, and he would start by reminding us that our actions should be based on knowledge, not belief. And this distinction yeah. between knowledge and belief is absolutely central to Plato's philosophy. Mm -hmm. He develops it uh, several times, Republic, Theaetetus, Meno, um, mm -hmm. very important. So, whether we're dealing with it doesn't matter whether it's misinformation or true information, we should mm. not take anyone else's word for it, even if it's true information, mm. but come to our own understanding and base our worldview on knowledge, not on belief. Um, beliefs are commonly based, as you were saying, on persuasive agents like advertising, an influencer you think trustworthy, you know, society's norms as a whole. That's, that's mm. one of the, as Plato points out in Republic, that's one of the largest. Uh, areas of influence on young people, especially. Uh, mm -hmm. But these agents can only ever make us believe something. What mm -hmm. a philosopher should do, or, or the way a philosopher might, or the way Plato might, would have approached this kind of issue, would be to say that you have to work to turn your belief into knowledge. And that's largely mm -hmm. internal work. That's not something you get from an influencer. He says in Menno that you have to not just believe that something is the case, which may indeed be true. It may be a true belief, but you have to work out why it's the case. And that's the way you convert belief into knowledge. Um, yes. And although in later dialogues, he's, he professes himself much more puzzled about what knowledge is, that's a pretty good, uh, pretty good approach to knowledge to say it's uh, working out why a belief is true. Um, I think a lot of modern philosophers would agree with that even. I feel like um, there's some kind of connection as well between one of the phenomena that I notice now is that everybody's an expert on things that they weren't experts on before. So during the pandemic, everybody was an expert on epidemiology suddenly. <laughs> they, they, all the doctors were wrong. Like, and uh, the influencers you know, suddenly became experts on um, stuff that they clearly had no methodological 
understanding whatsoever of, of how to evaluate research studies, but nevertheless, they're, they're quoting them left, right, and center. Yeah. Um, and one of the main things that Plato's Socrates warns us against is this idea of double ignorance, or the, he calls it a conceit that yeah. consists in believing that you know things that you do not know. Yeah. And Socrates says that ignorance isn't particularly dangerous in itself, as long as you know that you don't know something. But it's that but conceit you, of knowledge that's dangerous, yes. Yeah, and that, I feel like the internet is full of people who believe that they know things that they don't know. Yeah. And it I means that they're... Yeah, I don't think there's any particular danger in this as long as you're a little bit, as as long as your attitude is that you're kind of playing a game, so that you're uh -huh. a little bit removed from. Uh, I mean, like, you know, if you see if you see a if you see a movie, it's entertainment. You don't necessarily have to believe everything. Mm -hmm. So I think if I think if one could adopt that kind of uh, hands-off or uh, slightly detached view of influences, then it wouldn't then it wouldn't matter, right. or or, then, or or of your own beliefs, then it, then then I don't think they would be particularly harmful. What's harmful is acting on them and being absolutely convinced that you're right. Yeah, a kind of closed-mindedness that yes. comes from conceitedly believing that you know something. And also, I wonder if there's some connection between what we get over social media and from influencers isn't knowledge, it's, it's sound bites, basically, right? Like you were saying, yeah. it's, it's stuff that you could both learn or memorize or just kind of regurgitate um, without understanding um, yeah. how well, it would be. Well, I think so. I, I don't follow any influencers, so I don't know. <laughs> social media. It's are you, an, are you an influencer, Donald? No, you are... Yeah, maybe we all are. I think we all are now. I sometimes wonder. But um, it kind of reminds me of some of the things that Plato says about, has Socrates say about books. You know, sometimes he looks somewhat askance at books because Socrates is frustrated that you can't ask books questions. Yeah. Like they don't speak back to you. And in the same way, you know, what you, you get from Sophist, the Sophists, as I understand it, although they did sometimes engage in dialectic and do other things, but they were mainly known for delivering speeches. Um, and people, it seems like, I believe that the ancient Athenians, like the, the youths who went and listened to sophists would often, it sounds like, just parrot what they'd heard the sophists saying. I think that's part of what concerns Plato, is you'd go and you'd hear an amazing speech about justice from Protagoras or whatever, and yeah. then you know it might you know it might even be correct. It might yeah. even contain some wisdom, but you know there's no dialectic. Like you just then go away and kind of parrot or regurgitate the best bits of the the speech. Yeah. And I think that's what people get from social media. It's a kind of passive experience of a, a acquiring knowledge that you say that leads to yeah. belief or opinion. I think I'd agree with that. Yeah, um, genuine knowledge or understanding. At the, at the beginning of Phaedrus, Plato has um, uh, Phaedrus doing exactly what you just said, parroting an entire speech of yeah. Lysias. Um, and then Plato has Socrates then write, give, deliver two other speeches, which sort of contradict, well, first contradicts what Lysias was saying and then contradict himself yeah. as well. Yeah. Read the Phaedrus, people. Second-hand uh, knowledge that uh, people are kind of recycling. 
Uh, read the Phaedrus. Read all of read them all. Plato. I even like this. One of my favorite dialogues is the Axiochus, um, which is a pseudo Platonic dialogue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It but is quite fun. Actually, I haven't looked at it for years. Good. I haven't looked at it for years. I must do so again. It's nice and short as well. So. It's a consolation dialogue, which I kind of like because it's well, it's his therapy. Like he's doing a sort of psychological therapy, and it, um, it's arguably part of the consolation literature. It's about a guy. That's right. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I think he's the uncle of uh, Alcibiades, and he's uh, he's dying. And so, what do you what, what do you want when you're on your deathbed, about to pass away, is for Socrates to come round and ask you lots of questions. <laughs> 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 it makes him feel sorry. It makes him feel better, but worse at the same time. Yeah, <laughs> Just go away. But, it's too late. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, like we've had a great discussion, and I hope that some people, just like Robin has said, the apology in particular is a masterpiece. And I'm hesitant to recommend books to people because I think you know people read books for different reasons. But I make an exception actually for the apology, and you might for the Republic. But um, I think the first book of the Republic, or the Apology, you could read in a few hours. Like so, you know, you less best, less than a few hours. Yeah, you'll have consumed a masterpiece of you know Western philosophical literature. Uh, at worst, it will cost you yeah less than a few hours. So yeah. for that reason, I say definitely you know give it a go. Uh, people should go out and read it, and they should also read. And then once they've read that, they should go out. And get themselves a copy of Plato of Athens, like Robin's most recent book. Uh, many other books that you can go. Is it true that you wrote uh, fighting fantasy uh, yep. books? So it says that on your Wikipedia page. I, I didn't was, know that. <laughs> I was. Um, I not only wrote one, two, three, four or five of them. I was. I was the sort of series editor for a while. Oh yeah. Did you write science fiction ones or kind of yes, sort the, of the sorcery? First, yeah, the, the 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 then commissioning editor for the series, um, when she said, "Robin, why don't you write one of these?" Uh, specifically said, "I want to, I want a science fiction one." She wanted to see mm. if if the science fiction genre worked uh, as well as the fantasy genre, and I don't think it does. Um, I think the science fiction ones are, uh, proved less popular, at any rate, with the kids, with the readers. But having said that, my science fiction one, Rebel Planet, is um, all the other ones I wrote were fantasy, you know, swords and sorcery fantasy ones. Uh, but my science fiction one, Rebel Planet, is currently being turned into a graphic novel. Awesome. Cool. Cool. Well, I mentioned to you earlier that we'd like to end on a question, I guess in a kind of Socratic vein, to leave everybody with a burning question that they can reflect on. Um, so what would you like to ask our listeners? <laughs> I feel I feel embarrassed doing this, Donald, but I, I think there's only one, I think there's only one really, really big question. And here I'm going to quote a made-up science fiction writer called Kilgore Trout. We can go into Kilgore Trout's history later if you like. Um, and he wrote a book called Venus on the Half Shell, which is a quest book in which the protagonist, the hero, travels through the universe to try to find God. 
with one question. Why are we born to suffer and die? And that I think is the only question that, that there is for human beings. And it's a two part question because it's not just, first of all, it's why is it the common lot of humankind mm-hmm. to be born and suffer and die? But it, then you can personalize it. Why am I born to suffer and die? Or in other words, what am I here for? What's my role mm-hmm. in life? If you believe in God or fate or destiny in some way, what have I been put here on earth to do? So I think, I think this is a good question. And they may find some clues in Plato. They may find some clues in Perhaps, if they're they're lucky. Well, thanks once again, Robin, for joining us today. It's been a a fascinating discussion. And uh, thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. Um, And please go out, take a look at Robin's books, take a look at Plato, and have a think about the question that he's left us with in Maybe post your comments online on the old or social media and maybe put it to some more constructive use. Um, <laughs> so bye, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Bye. Thank again, you, Robin. Donald. Thank you very Cheers. much.